This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to More Than Amused podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and others on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to More Than Amuse. I'm Stani. And I am Sadie. And wherever you are in the world, thank you so much for joining us and, yeah, Mm -hmm. being a part of the muses here. It's been a really great month. I feel like we've had a lot of really fun episodes. I know. I really have loved every single episode we've done recently. So it's going to be even more fun because this one is like very interesting. I know. And there's so much (laughs) that we're planning on talking about. (laughs) I kind of had like a funny question. Okay. Because here's the thing. It's completely like a pop culture question. And we're going to talk about why this is so wrong at the end. So it's kind of even funny that I'm asking you this. Okay, cool. But I thought since it's such a popular thing. Throughout your life, would you have considered yourself more of a Marilyn Monroe or an Audrey Hepburn? Okay. So if I'm ignoring everything that we j- I just researched in preparation for yes. this, <laughs> for this podcast I know. episode. We're going to have a very good feminist discussion about why that is a very stupid question, but so we're going to answer gonna it first. I'm going to ignore every feminist bone in my body. Okay. I'm channeling that as we speak. The truth is, oh, I don't know. I feel like that's a complicated question. Yeah, it is. I think in my brain, I would have always wanted to be an Audrey Hepburn, but I felt like I was Marilyn Monroe. Oh, okay. To be honest. Cool. And yeah. I feel like it's probably because, you know, she's like the blonde. I'm more associated with her with like the flirty, fun, blonde, mm-hmm. you know, even like the dumb blonde trope. Yeah. Um, I feel like my body type is definitely Marilyn Monroe, more so than yeah. Audrey Hepburn, at least. Um, I know. <laughs> and so I think that's how I always pictured myself. But then I was always like, oh, but I wish I was more like the Audrey. I wish I was classy, but... I'm loud, I'm this, I'm that, I'm that. Mm-hmm. So I'm definitely more of a Marilyn, I felt. That makes sense. Yeah. But it's kind yeah. of like I said, like, which huh, I will go on to later to annoy, be annoyed about the fact that it was a bad thing that I wouldn't want to yeah. be a Marilyn and would want to be an Audrey. But I feel like if I'm being honest with myself, I was like, oh, I wish I was interesting and cool and just, I feel like Audrey Hepburn gets like more of like the effortlessly beautiful kind of vibe, you know? Yeah. Whereas Marilyn uh-huh. Monroe is more like the done up and beautiful. And I felt like I was like, ah, I don't have that like effortless beauty that Audrey Hepburn did, mm-hmm. you know? And so I yeah, think that, that was why I, I, that's who I associated myself with. Yeah. What about you? That makes sense. I didn't feel like either. I just didn't feel like I really classified as either. Um, I often found myself kind of feeling more like the adjacent stereotype, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like more like. A Jackie Kennedy or, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like the, oh, I don't really fit in the stereotypes. Because, yeah, like, I didn't feel flirty or, like, sexy enough to be Marilyn. And I didn't feel, like, put together or, like, proper enough to be Audrey. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I still don't see myself as some sex <laughs> <Yeah>. symbol. <laughs> I think that's kind of the weird part about that question is that it's, like, too unobtainable yeah opposites even just like that put together i was like i could never be the audrey hepburn because i am a true 
mess and I've always yeah. been a disaster. So how can I, I put myself in the same world as like a parent, you know, who I always thought yes. was such a classy Yes, Woman. like a classy style icon or like a sex icon. It's like neither. <laughs> like um, I wear leggings and hide in my room listening to Taylor Swift. I can't. Uh, like like n- I don't none associate. None of the above. I am depressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then like even as a young adult, I kind of had to come to the like knowledge that I didn't have to be any of the things, you know, that it was like fine not to like classify myself as a stereotype. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> Lifelong journey. <laughs> It, it really is a journey <laughs> as a woman to be like, you know, I can just be. But I remember different periods of my life where I wanted to be more like one or the other. Mm-hmm. So. Or like I would try and like channel that energy into mm-hmm. my life. So I think it's definitely a thing and probably a lot of pressure that people have felt. I mean, even now the like pop culture implications that those two alone have had. It's is, amazing. Yeah, absolutely insane. Well, I'll I'll talk about it more later. Before we dive into each of these women's life, it's kind of like, it's really interesting. You sent me an article that we'll reference later where it was yeah. like, it's so interesting how often these women are put together considering there is no actual real photo of them together. Like, nope. They, it doesn't exist. And so it's so crazy how often we see Audrey Hepburn right by Marilyn Monroe and how they're like the antithesis of each other. And really the only thing that ties them, and I guess like the topic of our episode we're going into, is they were Hollywood starlets during the golden age of Hollywood, Mm -hmm. which I don't have time to dive really deep into, but like a very briefly, very brief, like if you want to learn more about this time period, please go research it Mm -hmm. because I'm sure there's tons that I'm missing. But the golden age of Hollywood was between the 20s in the 60s when basically five studios controlled the film industry Mm -hmm. and that's where all of these major stars came from but it's kind of like they had rules almost like the Disney Channel stars had yeah where there was like weight limits that they'd get kicked out of if they went over and like they had different things that they had to fulfill and uphold oh my gosh and and it was because movies were like the biggest thing ever there was so much money in movies and these movie stars so it's like they had to make sure to maintain them yeah they were like trying to control this huge multi-million dollar empire mm-hmm. that they had so all of these stars signed really long-term contracts which are like unheard of now so you could only work with like one studio i know for that's years what and years when and years. i was reading through it, i was like oh like this was so different because it like talked yeah. about how it's like Marilyn Monroe had this one contract and I was like oh like that's so weird that that's how it was a lot of the times they couldn't turn down roles Mm -hmm. so they'd make them do it they often changed their names which I'm sure you noticed in yours (laughs) both of the ones I researched it as well they had to change their appearances Um, there was a lot of like acting voice Mm -hmm. um, lessons an image they had to uphold. Appearances were everything. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently women couldn't even wear pants for a while. So yeah, it was just like this whole like off-screen movie that was being dictated by these giant studios in order to make sure that this whole image and everything was protected yeah. so that the money would stay protected. It's like crazy how these women were so exploited and like 
because I doubt all of them were really getting paid what they were, you know, bringing in and how much they were actually oh. worth. <laughs> Compared to now, like if we had the same level of like stardom that they achieved now, mm-hmm. like if they were able to surpass, because I think they kind of surpassed the level of fame of any movie star today. Yeah. I can't think of a like good example because I don't think there's a counterpart. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like, who even are the biggest actresses right now? Like there's like Emma Stone who is like big yeah. and like Julia Roberts, Angelina Jolie, Anne Hathaway. But like even still like as successful as they are, I don't really feel like that's the icon status that is Marilyn Monroe no. and Audrey Hepburn or like the level of stardom. Which is insane to think about. So it just like shows you the level of what they were at like they and I mean they all had like pretty good lives considering money wise I think Mm -hmm. we'll talk about a lot of the other issues there were (laughs) but when it came to money like they were making good money Mm -hmm. it's just insane to think about if they were in today's like era Mm -hmm. with how much movies make today and like how much they could actually be signed on for with the level that they had yeah it would be beyond anything we've ever seen probably true (laughs) so yeah hollywood starlets were basically the young women that were created within the world of hollywood and and everything that came with that well we're gonna well we're going to attempt to be brief with yeah the lives we're gonna try we're talking about I, it felt almost weird to only like copy over a couple paragraphs about Marilyn Monroe because there's so much to Marilyn Monroe. But, you know, especially too with like with what I am going to mention, I don't want it to like just talk about like what she was stereotypically known as, but we're trying to be Mm -hmm. brief. We have an hour to talk about the lives of four women. So, um, yeah, (laughs) moving forward in the future, you know, hopefully if you're interested, if anyone's interested, we might do individually so we can really dive into them specifically but this is what we got though for today (laughs) these are seriously some of the most fascinating people i've ever read about Mm -hmm. (laughs) honestly so definitely everyone should go research them all on your own time as well because this is insane it really is okay so should i just go ahead and start yeah start us off all right so we are talking about the I don't know, original, but like, honestly, one of the biggest American icons of all time. Um, yep. I was reading like a part of it where it's like, she's almost like she's on par with like Mickey Mouse and Elvis as far as just like American culture and impact, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And she's just like a symbol. But Marilyn Monroe was born Norma mm-hmm. Jean Mortensen, and she was born in 1926 june 1st 1926 she of course was an american actress model and singer she was very famous for playing the comedic blonde bombshell characters which Mm -hmm. you go back you can listen to our stereotypes in movies we talk about the blonde bombshell but she i mean as we've mentioned she became one of the most popular sex symbols in the 1950s and 60s and kind of like was almost like the spokesperson of like not spokesperson, but almost like the symbol of that era's like sexual revolution, I feel. You know, like that yeah. was just... Yeah, oh, totally. She was so tied with all that. What I thought was interesting was that she was a top-billed actress for only a decade, um, but her films grossed $200 million, which <laughs> is equivalent to $2 billion in 2020 by the time of her death in 1962. Wow. So um, that was insane. <laughs> of course, you know, long after her death, she's 
and continue to be a major icon. And just a quick thing, in 1999, the American Film Institute ranked Monroe the sixth on the list of the greatest female screen legends from the golden age of Hollywood, which is interesting to me that she's sixth. I'm wondering who beat her. Um, but um, I know from my research, Audrey Hepburn was third, ah. which is interesting. Yeah. I'm going to have to look up to see who was first. Maybe they need to re-vote. Yeah, like, I don't know who's bigger than Marilyn and Audrey, but whatever. Okay, well, let me briefly just go into her life and her career here. So Marilyn was born and raised in Los Angeles, and she actually spent most of her childhood in foster homes and in orphanages. And I really had no idea that that was a thing so that's so devastating and she was also married at the age of 16 so she was married very very young she was of course alive during world war ii so during then she was working in a factory and at that time she actually met a photographer from the first motion picture unit and that began a successful pinup modeling career which Hmm. eventually led to short-lived film contracts with 20th Century Fox and Columbia Pictures. After like kind of a series of minor roles, she signed a new contract with Fox in late 1950. And then over the next two years, that's when she really started growing. Um, And that's when she really became a popular actress. In that time, there were roles in comedies, including As Young As As You Feel and Monkey Business, and in the dramas Clash by Night and Don't Bother to Knock. So that was the start of her career. Those were her starting out breakout roles, I guess. Something, Mm -hmm. so at this time she faced a scandal when it was revealed that she had posed for nude photos before she became a movie star. What was interesting is the story actually didn't damage her career, but it actually kind of created more interest and intrigue about her which led to her films being even more successful so i feel like that's a part of that whole sex revolution Mm -hmm. they were like "Ooh, interesting yeah like okay i don't know claiming it is uninhibited Yeah. yeah 1953 she was one of the most marketable hollywood stars she had leading roles in the film niagara which really focused on her sex appeal and then she was a star in the comedy gentlemen prefer blondes and how to marry a millionaire i love the movie how to marry a millionaire I if you have not seen, seen it, it i want to uh, everyone needs to go watch that one it's hilarious it's so funny and she plays a character that you wouldn't even like associate with marilyn monroe because yeah it was like the dumb blonde instead of the sexy like blonde bombshell mm. it, it's such a comedic role it's really really funny i love that movie cool i want to see it now okay yeah and that, it says yeah. here that that's what really established her star image as a mm-hmm. quote-unquote dumb blonde so yeah that was like i think obviously her biggest ones i'm very familiar with gentlemen prefer blondes that same year her nude images were used as the centerfold and on the cover of the first issue of playboy which pretty sure like were not used with her permission oh really so oh okay so here's the situation technically this wasn't like a photo shoot that started that was done for playboy what happened was is she did a nude modeling job for a photographer named tom kelly for 50 dollars um which was which is over about 500 dollars, kind of like when you factor in inflation all that so apparently it was a lot of money for its time which is great she signed a release form to tom kelly studios giving him permission to use and give the rights to and distribute the photos he took however he pleased okay So then Hugh Hefner knew about these pictures, saw the opportunity and bought the rights to the photos 
he purchased the rights from Tom Kelly for $500 and then published them in the first Playboy magazine. So she did not give additional consent for her, these photos to be like mass produced, like on this first edition of a magazine. This article I'm reading is like, she didn't have to. It's a complete lie that she never consented because she gave consent to the original photographer which is like okay well, true but that's I, different than being like i don't know the original photographer and being like, yeah okay do whatever you know compared to like hugh hafner in the first issue of playboy knowing what playboy would become like i'm sorry no that's not the same <laughs> yeah i agree i don't know what her thoughts were on it i mean she definitely didn't get enough money if that was no <laughs> definitely not so if anything she could have been mad about the cost because i know i would be a little bit mad <laughs> for real Um, But anyways, apparently she played a really significant role in the creation and the management of her public image throughout her career. But she was obviously really disappointed when she was typecast and underpaid by the studio, which kind of goes back to what I mentioned earlier that like and how, you know, you mentioned that they were signed in these contracts that were running their lives. And, you know, are they really actually getting fairly compensated for that because of this? So she was briefly suspended in early 1954 for refusing a film project because, like you mentioned, they weren't allowed to do that. But then she eventually returned to star in the film The Seven Year Itch, which was one of the biggest box office successes of her entire career. With that, though, the studio was still really reluctant to change her contract. Apparently, she founded her own film production company. And, I didn't um, know that. I know. She dedicated 1955 to building the company and began studying method acting under Lee Strasberg at the Actors Studio. However, later that year, Fox awarded her a new contract, which gave her a lot more control and a larger salary, which is, um, I'm sure, was the goal. Her roles after that included a critically acclaimed performance in Bus Stop and her first independent production in The Prince and the Showgirl. She won a Golden Globe for Best Actress for her work in Some Like It Hot, which came out in 1955 which was a critical Mm -hmm. and commercial success. And then her last completed film was the drama The Misfits in 1961. She had a pretty tumultuous private life and that got a lot of attention. She really struggled with addiction and apparently with mood disorders. Like I mentioned, she first got married and at the age of 16, that obviously did not last. But she had two public marriages. One was with a retired baseball star and another one was to the playwright Arthur Miller, who like was playwright of Death of a Salesman and The Crucible and All oh, My Oh, I didn't even think about that. Mm-hmm. Huh, Which interesting. My senior year of high school, I did a scene from All My Sons and got first place in region. So good job. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so both of those marriages, though, did end in divorce. August 4th in 1962, she died at the age of 36 from an overdose at her home in Los Angeles. Um, her death was ruled as a you know suicide but there are a lot of conspiracy theories now i feel like there's tons Mm -hmm. of conspiracy theories that have been proposed of what really happened because wasn't there like a rumor that she was having an affair with the president john f kennedy did they kill her i don't know yeah so yeah that is that is such a such a brief overview of marilyn monroe's successes but obviously wildly successful especially considering like she only it was really only 10 years that she was making movies like the fact that she gained such fame and i also really liked learning that like she was actually in very like she was in control of her public image because i think that it's pretty common for 
I mean, I've been guilty of this where it's like if there's a woman who is being sexualized by the media and that's like her primary, you know, like that was her thing. Right. I automatically just associate that and assume it's the men in her life that are forcing her to be that, you know. Um, And so I guess it's a good reminder that, you know, it it can be women. It can be a woman's choice, you know, on their own to choose to be perceived that way. And you know what I mean? It, like I said, I always, I realize that I have always kind of been like, oh, if they're being sexualized, it's probably because they don't want to be. When it's like, no, maybe they, like, they can make yeah. that choice for themselves. Mm-hmm. Like, that doesn't have to be because that's what the studio heads or the men are forcing them to do, you know? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, like, she filled a niche that hadn't really been filled and that she did so well. <laughs> like, so, like, she had yeah. to have known it was going to work. Okay. Should we move into Audrey Hepburn? Yes. Take it away, Stani. Okay. I'm going to try to sum this up briefly, but I did not know so much about her, and I felt like every single sentence I read was interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to skip through it, but please go read more about Audrey Hepburn. This is like one of the most fascinating lives I've ever seen. (laughs) I knew she was interesting. I didn't expect this much. (laughs) So um, Audrey Hepburn was born Audrey Kathleen Rustin on May 4th, 1929 in Belgium, actually. Hmm. Um, her mother was a baroness, like a Dutch noblewoman. Oh. And she was actually, like, um, Hepburn's father was her second marriage, and it was his second marriage as well. Mm. So he was actually, like, an honorary British consul, so kind of like a member of the consulate, but in Austria for Great Britain. Hmm. And that's how they met. I don't know. That whole part was kind of confusing. But the reason why she has the surname Hepburn instead of Rustin was because her father mistakenly believed that he was a descendant of the third husband of Mary, Queen of Scots, named James Hepburn. It's been proven now that he was, like, totally wrong, that they weren't descended from Mary, Queen of Scots' husband at all. But he hyphenated his name and went by Hepburn Rustin. So that's what she had adopted as well. So for Ooh. most of her life, she was actually known as Audrey Hepburn Rustin. And because of her mother being a Dutch noblewoman and then her father being from London and a lot of traveling that they did, they moved to like Brussels and they were a part of like the East Indy Netherlands company for a while. Like tons of traveling at her young age. She actually learned six languages over the course of her lifetime. What? Um, Dutch and English from birth because of her parents. And then throughout school and her career, she also learned French, German, Spanish, and Italian. Wow. Her family was very well off, but it doesn't mean they were without trials. Um, She actually called her father leaving. He kind of left abruptly to go be more of a part of the fascist political party in England. Hmm. Um, And so she actually called it the most traumatic event of her life, which is crazy because one of the things that I feel like people kind of loosely know about Audrey Hepburn, but maybe not to the extent that you think, is that she was actually in the Netherlands when World War II happened and it was German occupied. So this is like a whole other thing that happened that like you can't even comprehend, but it had a huge impact on her life. Um, so before the war, she'd actually been studying in England. She was Lon- in London, and she was being classically trained as a ballerina, mm. which makes perfect sense. If you look at her, I feel like she kind of screams ballerina. So she was taking ballet lessons and was like a star pupil. And so her mother moved her to the Netherlands from Britain because Britain declared war on Germany. 
And then she was like, oh, I think if we stay in the Netherlands, we'll be more safe. So she moved her daughter there and um, Audrey Hepburn continued taking lessons there. And then during German occupation, a couple of things happened. She actually had to change her name. So for a short time, she went as Etta van Hemstra because English sounding names were too dangerous because Britain had declared war on Germany. So she wasn't allowed to go by Audrey Hepburn because it was so English sounding. Yeah. So short time in her life, she went by a completely different name. She's quoted saying, had we known we were going to be occupied for five years, we might have all shot ourselves. (gasps) We thought it would be over the next week, six months, next year. And that's how we all got through was just constantly thinking it was going to be over soon. Um, Because of her mother's family's prominence in Netherlands society, like I said, she was a baroness. Mm -hmm. Her uncle was actually executed. Oh, my gosh. And then... Her half-brother was sent to Berlin to work in a German labor camp, and then her other half-brother had to go into hiding to avoid it. And she even said later, like, don't discount anything awful you hear or read about the Nazis. It's worse than you could ever imagine. Oh, my gosh. So it was really awful. Um, she did a lot to help out with, like, resistance against the war, even though it's not completely documented proof that she was a part of the resistance Mm -hmm. it's known that she would perform silent dance performances to raise money for the dutch resistance Mm. i think they were silent so the soldiers couldn't find them which makes sense yes but it's also believed that she did underground concerts um delivered newspapers took messages and food to like downed allied flyers and volunteered at hospitals during the entire time while this was happening. Oh, my god! Uh, her family, it's also believed that they temporarily hid a paratrooper in their home while all of this was happening. And she spoke on multiple occasions of being haunted by the trainloads of Jews' faces that she saw being transported to camps as she watched them. So she remembers watching them and a lot of their faces as they drove away, which I can't even imagine. The worst part of it that ended up having a lasting impact on her life is there was actually a Dutch famine in the winter of 1944 because the Germans blocked the resupply routes. Mm. So they had limited food and fuel supplies and they weren't able to like feed everyone and so they actually ended up trying to make flour out of tulip bulbs which if you think of the netherlands you think of the tulip field so they were attempting to like cook all that they could out of like these tulip bulbs which obviously are not meant to produce food or flour flour. like that's not a thing so all of her family and pretty much the entire nation ended up developing acute anemia and malnutrition and so when she returned Um, after the war when everything had settled down and she went to Amsterdam and then later on London with a ballet scholarship Uh they told her oh you're too short and you're too skinny to be a ballerina because of your malnutrition from the wartime kind of dashed her dreams of being a prima ballerina because she couldn't she could because it like impacted her health so bad so kind of a crazy start to then turn around and be in star-studded Hollywood I know but she did um She ended up starting with some small parts as chorus girls and some musicals, then took some formal speech lessons and ended up doing some small dancing and singing roles. Um, Not a lot of like solo singing, but like group singing Mm -hmm. while on location for a film called Monte Carlo in Monte Carlo. And she had a very small role. She met a French novelist who wanted to give her the title role of the Broadway play Gigi. And so she did it. 
Yeah, and it was an instant hit. It ran for 219 performances, and then they went on tour. Wow. So, yeah, it was a really big deal. And after that, it kind of opened the doors to one of the, like, beginning moments of her career. She got the starring role in Roman Holiday. Yes. Which is probably one of her most well-known movies. Well, one of her first well-known movies. Yes. <laughs> because, yeah. I was going to say the most, and then I was like, no, it's not. Mm-hmm. But it's one of them. Yes. <laughs> they originally wanted Elizabeth Taylor, but they were so impressed with her screen test that they cast her. And it's kind of funny because I could see a lot of the stereotypes of Audrey Hepburn coming through in a lot of the things they said about her. Mm. They were like her charm, her innocence, her talent, that enchanting girl. Yeah. Like, you know, it was just kind of interesting they called her like slender elfin and wistful regal and childlike you know like a lot of those stereotypes that we'll talk about later just kind of ended up defining who she was even though after the life she lived I don't know if that was entirely fair to call her innocent yeah I mean honestly Um, so she signed to a seven picture contract with Paramount Films and then did stage work in between. And this is when she was just constantly receiving awards. I couldn't keep track of how many movies and awards <laughs> she got during this time. Not only was she on the cover of Time magazine, she got the Best Actress Award for Sabrina, which if you haven't seen that one, super cute movie. Yeah, I haven't. Highly recommend. She also was in the Broadway play Ondine, which I've never heard of. But she got a Tony Best Performance Award for that. Oh, wow. Which made her one of the only three actresses at the time to receive the Academy and Tony Awards for Best Actress in the same year. Wow. She got a Golden Globe for World Film Favorite as well during this time period. And then was in the films War and Peace, um, Funny Face, which I feel like is another one that people have heard of a lot, uh, The Nun's Story, and then also Breakfast at Tiffany's, which is probably one of her most iconic yes. roles and defining roles. Interestingly enough, the author of the book that it's based on originally wanted Marilyn Monroe for the role. Really? Which is so interesting to me because I cannot picture that movie with Marilyn Monroe in the lead. Uh-uh. He said himself that Hepburn did a terrific job. And her dress went on, went on to be claimed as like the most famous little black dress of all time. And she ended up being nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actress for that as well. Wow. And then was in the movie Charade opposite Cary Grant, which was a very big deal. Another one was My Fair Lady, which we talked about a lot in the Julie Andrews Mm -hmm. one. Um, I don't know if you mentioned it, but Hepburn herself even asked for the role to be given to Andrews, but they told her no. Really? (laughs) Yeah. And her vocals in the movie, it's not her singing voice. Her vocals were dubbed by another actress. And she was actually really offended by it because she had taken singing lessons. And even though she wasn't a singer, she was like, no, I'll do it. And then they like dubbed over her singing voice with another actress. I had no idea that was dubbed. I just assumed it was Audrey. Kind of crazy. And then shortly after that, she did another movie called How to Steal a Million, which is my personal favorite. Please go watch that one as well. Love that movie. <laughs> it's so good. And then her personal life was kind of the same thing, like lots of failed marriages. I feel like this is such a constant with these stars. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. Um, she had a failed engagement to a man named James Hansen, but then said that it wouldn't work with their different careers. Then she married one of her co-stars from the play on the Broadway play Ondine that she was in mm-hmm. named Mel Ferrer. Apparently from the beginning, the gossip columns were like, oh, your marriage isn't going to last, which is awful to say. 
but they were happy together apparently for quite a while. A lot of people thought he was way too controlling. And one person even said, like, I think Audrey allows Mel to think he influences her. So I don't know if she actually was in control and kind of like playing yeah, along yeah. or if he was actually worse than she was ever willing to say. Mm. So don't know how bad it is. But they got divorced after 14 years of marriage and they were actually in the middle of divorce while filming a movie called Wait Until Dark, where he was the producer. Oh, Wait Until which Dark is, is just a good awful. movie. Yeah, so her ex-husband was the producer of the film that she was in. Oh my gosh, <laughs> so, that would suck. <laughs> yeah, so she said it was probably one of the most stressful films. Yeah, shortly after, she met her second husband, an Italian psychiatrist named Andrea Dotti. And they had two kids together, but both of them ended up cheating on each other. Uh, well. <laughs> um, yeah, he had affairs with younger women, and she had a romantic relationship with an actor named Ben Gazzara during the filming of her movie Bloodline. Mm. And then, so their ma- marriage lasted 13 years, and then they got divorced. And then um, her last and final relationship was with a Dutch actor named Robert Wolders. He was actually a widow. And she had met him through a friend, and she said later that the nine years she spent with him were the happiest years of her life, and that she considered them, like, married, not just officially. Kind of sad that she only got, like, nine years with him. But at least she had a happy marriage. (laughs) So a couple of things she did kind of towards the end of her life, she did a documentary called Gardens of the World with Audrey Hepburn for PBS. She did some spoken word albums for children's fairy tales. And something that I feel like she's kind of known for, but it was a lot more (laughs) in depth than even I knew. Um, Throughout the entire 1950s, she did a ton of work with UNICEF. Oh, yeah. She was a good one. Ambassador for UNICEF and helped a ton with like the orphanages and raising money. She did commercials for UNICEF. My mom said she remembers seeing Audrey Hepburn on the TV all the time for commercials for the Red Cross and UNICEF. I don't know why and I like don't realize Audrey Hepburn was like so recent. You know what I mean? That like yeah. your mom could see. Uh-huh. It just she feels so <laughs> long ago to me for some reason. Yeah. No, that was throughout the 1980s because yeah. she lived to be quite quite old. Oh, yeah. I mean, compared to Marilyn Monroe, she lived quite a long time. But yeah, she did a ton of work because of her childhood that she spent in German occupation. Yeah. So she wanted to help out as much as she could. So um, she actually ended up getting a Presidential Medal of Freedom from George W. Bush in recognition of her work. And the UNICEF Foundation actually has a statue of her in their New York headquarters because of how much she did. Like she donated so much money, did so much help, literally went to the third world countries to actually see the children and like participate in everything so she was like very hands-on with all of it which is really incredible that she said that um a really cool quote by her really quick is the third world is a term i don't like very much because we're all one world i just want people to know that the largest part of humanity is suffering sadly um they found some stomach she had some stomach pain went into the doctors and they found a rare abdominal cancer She started chemotherapy and then spent her last Christmas in Switzerland with her family. And then shortly after that, she died while she was asleep in her home Mm. on January 20th, 1993. Very long, very successful, very, I would say, like, happy for the most part. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Considering everything that 
she had gone through. Yeah, her early life was definitely a whole other ballgame, which is why I feel like we couldn't do a very in-depth state of the arts for any of them no. because very different experiences, but very traumatic for both, both of them facing World mm-hmm. War II just in different ways. Really crazy. Cool. Well, should I dive into Grace Kelly then? Yes. I feel like I don't know a lot about her, so I'm really excited. I realized I knew absolutely nothing about her, but she literally had a very magical life. Let me explain. (laughs) So we have Grace Kelly, who was born 1929, lived until 1982. Of course, she was an American film actress who start, so she started in a lot of pretty significant films in the early 1950s, but she eventually Mm -hmm. became Princess of Monaco because Mm -hmm. she married Prince Rainier III in April 1956. Okay, so she just like a literal princess. princess. (laughs) So she graduated from the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in 1949. And after she began appearing in New York City theatrical productions and did over 40 live drama productions broadcast in the early 1950s, golden age of television. Kelly gained stardom from her performance in John Ford's adventure romance Mogambo, I believe in 1953, starring Clark Gable and Ava Gardner, for which she was nominated for the an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. So crazy that in her first movie, she is getting, well, not her first movie, but you know, yeah. her first like big movie and she's nominated for an mm-hmm. Academy Award. She won the Academy Award for Best Actress for her performance in the drama The Country Girl in 1954, and that was with Bing Crosby. Some of her other notable works include the Western High Noon with Gary Cooper, the romance comedy High Society with another with Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra, which was crazy. Um, And then there were three consecutive Alfred Hitchcock suspense kind of thrillers. Dial mm. M for Murder, which I haven't seen, but like I know that name. And I like want to go yeah. and see all these classic movies. There was Rear Window in 1954 with James Stewart and then To Catch a Thief in 1955. She actually retired from acting at the age of 26 to marry the prince. Okay. Um, and she began her duties as Princess of Mon- Monaco. Hitchcock actually hoped that she would appear in more of his films, which kind of required that icy blonde lead actress but mm-hmm. he wasn't able to convince her to come out of retiring interesting i know so i like i wonder if maybe because you know she doesn't have as much prominence of course as like audrey or marilyn so i wonder yeah. if maybe that would have she would have more of a lasting impression if she would have done more movies but also like she was a literal princess so like yeah (laughs) i get it (laughs) i know i mean like uh if you have to give up hollywood to be a literal princess i guess that's okay (laughs) yeah honestly but her and the prince had three children there was princess caroline prince albert and princess stephanie oh and then she um grace retained her link to america she had dual citizenship and then she did a lot of charity work she focused on young children and the arts she established the princess grace foundation to support local artisans in 1964 she had organized created organizations for children's rights and then gained consultative status within unicef so she did a lot of charity work as well with her i guess as a princess so you know i guess you have the ability to make the change do it she ended up dying at the age of 52 because of injuries sustained in a car crash that had happened the previous day she is listed 13th among the American Film Institute's 25 
greatest female stars of classic Hollywood cinema. And then her son, Prince Albert, helped establish the Princess Grace Awards in 1984 to recognize emerging performers in film, theater, and dance, which I think is sweet. Oh. Just a couple things about like her legacy and kind of how she was perceived. Um, she left, obviously, a pretty lasting legacy because she mm -hmm. has such an iconic like Hollywood look. Like when you see her, it's kind of like, oh, there's the typical kind of like, you know, yeah. golden Hollywood blonde and all of that. There's a little a quote from something I read that said that she was the most elegant glamour girl of the screen. She appeared on the cover of the January 31st, 1955 issue of the of Time magazine and that magazine hailed her as the top movie star who brought about a startling change from the run of smoky film series and bumptious cuties. Um, she was <laughs> described as the girl in white gloves because she wore prim and noticeably white gloves. And journalists often called her the lady or Miss Kelly for this reason. Well, how fitting that she became a princess. I know. So I feel like she <laughs> yeah. just appeared to be as a princess. Her kind of types, though, in movies, they varied from like kind of like the voluptuous, you know, siren to the girl next door. She was kind of like seen and portrayed as like this very wholesome character but yet also very glamorous um and she came okay. to symbolize like classic and understated look that she kind of you know had both on and off screen and she was known for having amazing dress sense which if you look up pictures of her it's like like i said it's like you look at her and it's like oh okay like that looks like someone who would be princess of monaco so <laughs> her wedding dress I was also something too that she was one of the most photographed women of the 20th century. I can understand why. Yeah, like, <laughs> like I said, just like the, the what you would imagine for just like a beautiful blonde girl from like the mid 1900s. It's like, yup, that's uh -huh. it. She's just stunning. Yeah, her her dress is is beautiful. Her wedding dress. It's so pretty. Mm -hmm. It's like so regal and princessy, but like I feel like it looks a lot like Meghan Markle's. Did, that's if what I, I was thinking. Correctly. Yeah, I actually am seeing a picture right now of both of them side by side and it's like oh yeah i feel like similar. Meghan markle totally was like i want to look like grace kelly which i would do <laughs> yeah i mean who wouldn't that's so interesting i know like she literally became a princess of in europe but yeah that's pretty much all there is to grace i mean obviously there's a whole lot more to grace but if i had yeah. to summarize it as quickly as possible there is grace <laughs> kelly i feel like we should like create like a list of all of these movies as like a guide Oh, to the yeah. Hollywood starlets that we discuss and like that the best be movies so they have. That would be so fun. Yeah, I, we can mark the ones we've seen mm -hmm. and like, because I've seen, I don't think I've seen any Grace Kelly movies, but that's either. probably because I wasn't watching Alfred Hitchcock films. Yeah, I don't, at a young age. I don't think I've seen any of those either. <laughs> and honestly, I don't think I've actually seen any Marilyn Monroe movies. And the only, like Audrey Hepburn is My Fair Lady, Breakfast at Tiffany's, and Wait Until Dark yeah. or Wait After Dark or oh, okay. one of those. So I need yeah. to like catch up on my early yeah. cinema. No, my mom loved these movies and I feel like she watched them with me a lot because they were extremely appropriate for a younger oh, girl Oh yeah, that's to watch. true. Like she didn't have to worry about any of the scenes being too much for mm -hmm. a 13 year old or even younger so I grew up watching a lot of these movies and I didn't think anything of it and then I was like oh like they're a really big deal yeah <laughs> like, I didn't know that because yeah Sabrina I remember watching that like super young and then um I think we watched How to Steal a Million and How to Marry a Millionaire so that's Audrey Hepburn and, and, and Marilyn Monroe yeah. now I really want to watch those now both of them oh they're so good they're like the cute Cutest, and they're like comedic too like these are really funny I feel like if you're looking for like a good chick flick literally any of these movies will do 
because they're funny and they're like romantic. So perfect. We're going to take a quick break just to spotlight one of our new favorite women artists. Okay, so today for artist, artist spotlights, I was able to find someone who is an actor, actress, I suppose. This account on Instagram that I have found is one broke actress. And this, it's like working actor life. It has tips and advice, questions, and also is a podcast and blog. So, seems really awesome, actually. Love that. I know. I'm such a fan of this. I literally, because I knew I wanted to find an actress to, you know, shout out for this. So, I figured, okay, let's just, you know, search actress on Instagram. And she pulled up. And this, it's honestly really amazing. Just like looking through her feed, she just, it's really informational and I'm sure to anyone who's like wanting to get into acting and to be an actress like this would be an amazing thing to check out she has tips and tricks funny little TikToks and reels and you know things like that and like I said just a lot of really good content that I can see here so I would go check her out definitely going to be following her myself again that's one broke actress looks like her name the creator of it is Sam Valentine or Valentine or whatever yeah, I'm so intrigued. I wonder what acting life is like. I know, especially like trying to make it in LA nowadays. Like, oh dear. Yeah, like that sounds like a completely interesting experience. I can't even imagine. <laughs> I know. There's like a part of me that would like love to be an actress and like do that still. Mm-hmm. But I got, I just want to do everything in my life. So I I'm loved like, acting. Acting was really fun. I like was so insecure about my acting in high school when I was like doing theater and stuff. And then at the very end of it, I was like, wait, this can be so much fun. And then I just haven't had the chance to do it since. So I like there's a part of me that like secretly wants to like do like a community. I want to, too. I've thought about that lately. Like how much fun it would be to be in like a community theater production. I would love it. My life is way too busy to do it. But man, I I would love to do it. One day. So one day that's my goal is to go back and just do a fun. If there's ever like a local Mary Poppins, that will be my That that would be cute. Okay. I have a different one. I ran across this account on Pinterest actually, and I was mesmerized by their videos. So highly recommend watching their reels. It's called Forest Ceramic Co. And it's the subtitle is created by Sean and Valerie. So I think it's like a husband and wife, or maybe it's like a brother, sister. I don't know. I couldn't really find their partnership exactly, but they have really, the subtitle is like experimental colored porcelain. Mm. And it's very true. Like, they do really weird, interesting stuff. And I think they've been pretty open about it on their reels that, like, not all the time does it work out. And they sell a lot of stuff discounted because they're like, oh, we tried this and it didn't work. I like still selling it, though. Like, that seems so cool. But, yeah, they kind of play around with, like, cool colors and cuts and weird stuff. And it's just really bright and fun. And their reels are so much fun to watch because, like, I don't know, they just start doing something different than you expect. They, like, cut into the clay and all of a sudden there's, like, six layers of colors inside that you didn't notice. And Anyway, so check them out on Instagram and for sure watch the reels. It's Forest Ceramic Co. Also, I was going to mention, hey, if you're a listener, tell us so we can follow you. And I felt Mm -hmm. like it was a perfect segue into a listener who messaged us and we got to have a wonderful conversation with. Um, And their name is Christy Minnell. 
R I believe that's how you say it, but it's spelled Christy K R I S T Y M A N N E L L dot art. Her bio on Instagram on Instagram is an Australian artist in Amsterdam. And she does really amazing things and amazing work. Just beautiful paintings. They're like these beautiful portraits of mothers and babies. And they're so beautiful. It looks like a lot of them are self-portraits, which I love even more. I know. I think they're so stunning of just motherhood. Yeah, she's just like really capturing the experience of motherhood. And they're very beautiful. So I know they're so beautiful and she has like a lot of other things, but those are definitely the more recent ones and yeah, a lot of cool drawings and things like that. So I would definitely check her out. All right. Now back to the show. Cool. And then we'll lead into probably the one I've seen the most films of actually. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Even though I didn't know anything about her personally, but it was one of my mom's personal favorites. So I heard about her a lot. Um, Doris Day, which I think is probably going to be the one that no one knows a ton about. Yeah, I don't hardly know anything about her. Yeah, and it was probably a different one to bring into this, but her stereotype that she had was so completely different that I thought it would be kind of cool. So that's why she's in here. But let's dive into her a little. Uh, Okay, so Doris Day was born Doris Mary Ann Kappelhoff in April 3rd of 1922. And um, was also an American actress, singer, and actually an animal welfare activist. Mm. So still doing a ton of charity work, but in a slightly different way. She was actually born in Ohio, which I thought was interesting. Her mother was a homemaker and her father was actually a music teacher. Her parents separated early, kind of like everyone else we talked about. But she started out like very early dancing. And then um, when she was only 15, that dance career ended very suddenly when she was in a car accident that injured her leg and it ruined a lot of her dance dreams. Apparently it was a very severe injury, Mm. which is crazy. So she kind of turned to singing. While she was recovering, she started singing along to the radio and found this new talent for singing that she didn't know she had. And her personal favorite to sing along to was Ella Fitzgerald. So she would listen to all of Ella Fitzgerald's songs and try to sing along with her and try to like kind of copy the way her voice did things because she was so obsessed with the way the Ella Fitzgerald's voice sounded. That's so cool. Which is cool. So her mother was like, okay, let's sign you up for voice lessons. And her teacher was so impressed by her potential that she started giving her three lessons a week for the price of one. Wow. Which is insane. Not so much dedication to put into a student. But it paid off. Um, She got a gig performing at a local radio station and then ended up working with Barney Rapp because he needed a female vocalist. And that's when she ended up changing her name because (laughs) they didn't want to put Kappelhoff on the marquee. (laughs) So he was like, how about you just do Day, like Doris Day. Like, I love the song, like day after day, like it'll sound great. And she was like, "Okay," And that's what she went by for the rest of her career. Um, So during this time, she actually performed a song that was the hit anthem of the end of World War II. And then she also had six other top 10 hits during this time as well. And a lot of people said that, like, as a singer, she belongs in in the company of Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra because of, like, how many greatest hits she was doing. And then during that time, she also went 
to perform in a role in a movie and they hired her because she looked and acted like an all-american girl which she Mm. became known as and that was her stereotype Um, however she would go on to record tons of different hits for songs within the movie roles that she did she did a lot of musical movies Mm, okay so all of her songs that were within the movies usually did pretty well as well and she was actually voted the favorite star of the U.S. servicemen that were overseas in Korea. Mm. So they were, like, watching all of her movies. Her most commercially commercially successful film was I'll See You in My Dreams, which broke box office records of 20 years. Wow. Which is insane. Um, I actually haven't seen that one. Yeah, but the one right one. after that, she was in a comedic Western-themed musical called Calamity Jane in 1953. Okay, yeah. Super cute. Um, She plays kind of like a tomboy girl next door. It's a really cute movie. And a song from the film actually ended up winning Academy Award for Best Original Song. Wow. As well. Um, She also had her own radio program called The Doris Day Show. And throughout the 1950s, her albums from six of her movie musicals charted in the top ten. Three of them at number one. And after that, she decided not to renew her contract with Warner Brothers and continued doing other things. But this is kind of when some things happened. So by the late 1960s, the sexual revolution that we talked about with Marilyn Monroe Mm -hmm. kind of took control. And Doris Day was dubbed as the world's oldest virgin. Oh, dear. Even though she wasn't. But they were like so annoyed i guess at that point with the trope that she had played of like this family friendly girl next door yeah musical film character that a lot of people didn't want to go watch her films anymore weird so she kind of slipped away from the box office stars and i think that's why she's not as notorious as a lot of these others is because her career kind of ended a little bit earlier well her popularity ended her career kind of continued just not in the way that mm-hmm. anyone expected because yeah she was like the family friendly one you know yeah so this is also a very sad moment because her third husband martin melcher um passed away and then she discovered that him and his business partner had spent all of her money leaving her deeply in debt and then also signed her up for a television series And she didn't want to be on TV. And it was called The Doris Day Show. And she had no interest in being on TV at all. Oh, my gosh. But because she was so deeply in debt and they had spent everything that she had, she didn't have any money left to make any other decisions. Oh, my. So she had to. That's horrible. And throughout the course of her life, she was actually married four times. So and all of them sound absolutely tragic, Um, (laughs) except for the last one. Uh, Her earliest marriage was to a trombonist, Al Jordan, who she met while she was singing with Barney Rapp. Mm -hmm. And he was actually a violent schizophrenic who died by suicide. Actually, one story with him is when she was pregnant and refused to have an abortion, he beat her to try and force a miscarriage. Oh, my God. Yeah. However, their son was born and he was okay. But, yeah, uh, that's kind of scary. And then her second marriage was to George William Wilder. And he was a saxophonist and brother of the actress Virginia Wilder. Mm-hmm. And they apparently they kind of had like a brief marriage. I don't think it lasted very long. Oh, yeah. It looks like it was only a couple of months. Oh, wow. So then she married the American film producer Martin Melker, who squandered all of her money and Ow. signed up for a 
bunch of stuff. I think it wasn't only a TV show. It was a bunch of other things, too. But she was like, great. And then her last and final marriage was to Barry Comden, who was the maitre d' at a hotel of one of her favorite restaurants. Uh And would give her, like, scrap meat and bones to take home to her dogs. She was, like, really touched by that because he cared so much about her animals and she loved her animals. So her show actually went on to be, like, mildly successful like not over the top but like it had pretty good ratings and she had like quite a few people on it especially one of her leading men that she had starred with a lot rock hudson he came on shortly before he died to her show she was revered by george w bush for her achievements in the entertainment industry and got a presidential medal of freedom from him wow and then um one thing that i mentioned at the beginning that she was like a really big advocate for was animal welfare Mm -hmm. Um, apparently during her movie the man who knew too much she saw how the animals were being treated like the animal extras and she got really really mad about the conditions that they were being used in like for filming and so she refused to work until they were properly fed and cared for Wow. Yeah. So the production company had to set up feeding stations and, like, make sure that they were feeding them every day, which, duh. Like, I don't know. So before she'd go back to work, they had to do that. And then she actually co-funded actors and others for animals Hmm. and did a bunch of newspaper advertisements denouncing the wearing of real fur. And then went on to found uh, Doris Day Pet Foundation, now called the Doris Day Animal Foundation, and then also the Doris Day Animal League to kind of help reduce pain and suffering for animals. And she's often quoted saying that, like, her public image is unshakably that of America's wholesome virgin, the girl next door, carefree and brimming with happiness. An image I can assure you more make-believe than any film part I ever played. Weird. It's so interesting how, like, I don't know if it's, like, especially women. Like, obviously men get trapped in this too, but it's, like, we just love shoving people into categories of just one thing and then not letting them be anything else like it's so weird like it's just so crazy to me that it's like you know they were deeming her like oh the world like america's oldest virgin when it's like she was also being like an animal rights activist and like you know what Mm -hmm. i mean like trying to do good things for the world and it's just crazy how like one small little incorrect assumption can just like derail someone's whole career when they're in the limelight yeah i saw so many things that were like oh she always gives them the bedroom eyes but she never gives it up and it's like she's been married four times she has a kid like what are you talking about she's obviously not a virgin like (laughs) it is literally impossible for her to be a virgin so um just very strange i yeah i don't know it was a very interesting perception of her and honestly one of the most critical which was interesting too yeah but yeah she passed away on may 13th of only 2019 actually so extremely recently oh wow yeah at the age of 97 after getting pneumonia and if you want to hear a crazy story then look up how her son is like believed to be the target of the charles manson murders because that was a whole other thing that like i would love to dive into but like wait really? we don't have time yeah he like lived in the house and had like been friends with charles manson and then moved out and then oh. that was the house where the charles manson murders happened yeah so no way i forgot about mm-hmm. that so yeah that's doris day's son who was like the producer and everything and was like considering signing on charles manson to be like a singer 
for yeah the whole story is insane so if you want to like read that then that's crazy too because that's Doris Day's son that so. that is a very insane story I'm, <laughs> yeah, I totally crazy. forgot oh that's scary I know can you imagine living somewhere and then you move out and everyone there gets murdered oh my You're like, gosh oh. I think the most interesting thing with all of them is that I could see so clearly the film tropes. Yes, that's and what I was then thinking. I realized that it's like these were the beginnings of those film tropes. Like they were the originals. Like they're almost like what created every all of these. Yeah, like the origin story yeah. of the film tropes. Because you have Marilyn Monroe, who is probably like the bombshell blonde, the dumb blonde that mm-hmm. we talked about, and then you have like Grace Kelly, who was like that ice hitchhawk. Hitchcock blonde that we talked about. Yes. And then you have um, Audrey Hepburn, who was kind of like the quirky, like, wayfish elfin. So, like, the manic pixie dream girl. Mm-hmm. And then you have Doris Day, who was, like, the family-friendly, like, girl next door. Yep. Like, America's and, sweetheart. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, like, these are the reasons those film tropes exist, because they decided to put these real women with very multidimensional lives in these tiny little boxes. <laughs> I know. Well, that's kind of what, like, it's so crazy with Doris Day that it's, like, because of a couple roles that she played in a movie, suddenly it just wasn't mm-hmm. cool anymore. And there she is now. Like, that's so crazy. Yeah. And the weird part with it is that it's like, yeah, her films were family friendly, but honestly, kind of so were the other ones. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's nothing in, like, How to Marry a Millionaire that would be... Like, scandalous? Inappropriate? I don't is think so. Is it just that it's Marilyn Monroe and just her... I guess. They're like, she's so pretty. That, but she, like, wears glasses the entire time and, like, acts really dorky and awkward. So, like, I don't get it. And kind of what you said is, like, Grace Kelly, how she was almost seen as, like, the girl next door in a lot of her roles, too, where it's just, like, why did that, like, why was that the end-all be-all for Doris Day? Where with yeah. Grace Kelly, she was kind of able to, like be more regal and like a fashion icon and like a Hitchcock blonde like what was the yeah now I wonder like why was it the Doris Day is the one who people just like I said it like it sounds like it just like wasn't really cool to like her anymore yeah they just like decided that she was over and that was the end Doris Day got canceled I know for nothing (laughs) she didn't do anything anything wrong They were just like, nope. Like, don't want you in our movies anymore. But the article, we'll have to link it. Oh, it's a really good read about, like, the difference between the way we idolize Audrey Hepburn versus Marilyn Monroe. And isn't it just called, Mm -hmm. like, Stop Idolizing Audrey Hepburn? Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite things she said, though, is they fulfill the roles we desire them to play, not as people, but as archetypes. Yeah. And I think I brought this up a little bit at the beginning of the episode of like what she brought up is it's like the reason why maybe Grace Kelly hasn't lived on in that same way is because she's not so easily fit into a box of like classy Mm -hmm. versus pretty or, you know, like all of the different stereo, like the differences between Marilyn and Audrey. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely why like Marilyn and Audrey have been like the two standout, Mm -hmm. like even to our generation. Yeah. Is because of like this weird dichotomy between the two where it's like, oh, like Hepburn is the classy, smart, evolved choice. And Monroe is like the sensuality, glamour, sex appeal. 
And it's just very interesting. I like this quote of like, there is indeed a perception out there that Hepburn is somehow the classier, smarter, more evolved ideal of idol of choice, almost like the thinking girl's answer to a Monroe fetish. So it's kind yeah. of like the original, like, I'm not like other girls. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Made, that's what like, made me think of. I'm not a Marilyn Monroe. I am an Audrey Hepburn. Because I'm smart. And it's like, why can't you have sex appeal <laughs> and be smart? Like, why are we so oh, divided man. here? Well, and it's just very strange because, like, I don't think anyone could look at Audrey Hepburn and be like, oh, she's the less pretty, I like, know. classier, like, smart. unbelievably stunning. She's <laughs> gorgeous. Like, all of them were. Like, if you look at pictures of any of these women, like, like they're it Hollywood is beyond. for a reason. Yeah, like, they were so pretty. Like, even Doris Day was considered, like, kind of prude or whatever. She's gorgeous. Yeah, she's stunning. <laughs> like, even in her old age, she still is just, like, this beautiful woman. I just think it's also very interesting that we continue to put those two against each other or next to each other. Or like in the article, she talked about how many child's costumes you see of the two of them together. Yeah. Um, Like a little breakfast at Tiffany's, Audrey Hepburn and a little, um, what's the movie that she's in with the white dress? Oh, Gentlemen Before Blondes? Is, is that the one? Uh, is that the one? I'm not sure. I think so. The you know the classic, the classic scene yeah, where the, the classic wind great yeah. and it blows up her dress yeah like how many toddlers are dressed up in those two little dresses as little tiny Audrey Hepburns and Marilyn Monroes and why we have this strange fascination with the two of them yeah what's so um, funny to me too is it's like it's not like I'm making some bold feministic stance to say women can be have sex appeal and be smart like mm-hmm. that's like wow Sadie duh you know like that's not some brave stance at all yeah it's Mm -hmm. so it almost annoys me even more that it's like you like obviously like I think society is growing and we're getting better and we're evolving and we're realizing this and I hope and pray that the messages that are being fed to young girls are different now but it's like up until I was in my early 20s late teens I really have it put into boxes, you know? Yeah. And that's why it's like I feel I still feel the need to just like talk about it a lot is because I feel like I was so personally affected by this, you know, where it's like so influenced by just like the fact that there were all these stereotypes and women were put in boxes and I was kind of like, where do I fit? Where do I belong in this? Yeah, Instead of just being like, no, I can just kind of be everything and that's okay. And it's so crazy, like how in so many different facets and aspects of culture and movies and music and like all these things that media creates and we consume that you can see these reoccurring themes over and over and over again that like refuses to see women as multidimensional that like wants to put them in singular boxes. And like I said, like it feels so silly almost now to point out because I think we are now becoming more aware of it. But at the same time, it's like, but it was still such a thing. And I think it is still such a thing where it's like, we do still kind of hear that, you know, like, are you a yes. man or are you an Audrey? When it's like, exactly, what does that mean? <laughs> it doesn't mean anything because it's like, n- you didn't have their lives. You didn't grow up in foster care and then like yeah. end up on the cover of Playboy. And like, you didn't grow up in German occupied Netherlands and lose your chance to be a prima ballerina to like go yeah. on to be like, these are a beloved hollywood fascinating star. stories and incredible lives and the fact that like we have reduced them to these like stereotypes that they played in the movies and it's almost like we 
put them on the pedestal for what they are viewed as rather than what they actually did and that's something that the article mentioned is like Mm -hmm. it's more of like the concept of Marilyn Monroe that has been so glamorized rather than the movies like I said like I've seen this character portrayed so many times like everyone knows Marilyn Monroe she's like an American symbol and yet I don't think I've actually seen any of her movies so. Yeah, and if you actually do, it, a lot of the times it feels very disconnected. Yeah. From, I remember when I first saw a Marilyn Monroe movie, I was kind of shocked because I was like, this is an extremely funny, like clever part that she's playing that took so much talent and care. And like, this isn't who I thought Marilyn Monroe was. Yeah, and to think that it's like I grew up just being like, oh, she was a sex symbol bimbo when it's like yeah no she was a very talented comedic actress who was very funny had complete had very a strong control over her career and her public image you know like exactly yeah there's some quotes from the article that i love so there's like a lot of ideas she talks about the idea that like a lot of hepburn fans think that she's a better pop culture idol yeah because of it was probably just a reaction against the idealization of bombshells so it was a lot of people going like oh well it's unfair to assume every woman's gonna be like Marilyn so what if you're like reading and being reticent what if you aren't a va-va-voom glamour and sex appeal girl then here you go American culture Audrey's your girl yeah so it's kind of this just like other side like oh well if you can't be a Marilyn then here you go Mm -hmm. like you can be the smart classy one and for a brief talk on body image so if anyone doesn't want to listen to that skip ahead but I have a point to make where it's like it's also interesting to me that they do have such different body types right Audrey Hepburn is the thin woman Marilyn Monroe is like it's curvy right that's her stereotypical thing but I find it so interesting that it's like it almost just adds layers to it in my opinion that their body types were so different and it's almost just Mm -hmm. goes into talk about the fact how annoying it is that body types literally go out of style just like clothes do you know where it's like if you don't feel good about your body wait five years and suddenly it's going to be in style you know like big butts versus no butts and like what used to be an insult yeah. like I think I think my mom I had a conversation with my mom once of just being like if someone would have told me I had a big butt as a teenager I would have been so offended and now that's like such a compliment that you can a get someone compliment. if someone says yeah. you have a big butt it's like awesome I'm hot then and yeah that's just a whole other side thing that it just really I just hate that and I just find it interesting that they're both it's like another way that I think is almost like partly maybe why they are so paired against each other which is so weird like the more i think about it the more i'm just like what and kind of like i said it's like they never there's no pictures of them together in real life like Mm-mm. did they even meet did they even interact i don't know if they were even that closely associated with one another to be honest so it's just like they were they were doing similar but very different movies yeah. so it was just, different studios and I mean, Audrey Hepburn's career obviously went on a lot longer because she, she didn't lived longer. Yeah. Yeah. She lived a long time. Yeah. It's just kind of very interesting that they're so thrown together when in reality, they're they aren't similar at all. Yeah. Um, other than the fact that they were very good at playing parts that Hollywood assigned to them. Yeah, for <laughs> real. It's kind of like you said, I love it. It's like it's the origin story for all the tropes. And it's crazy how long it they really last is. and have lasted. One of my favorite things she says, too, is like they um, well, she's talking about Audrey Hepburn. But she says an actor so skilled at her craft that qualities she invents on screen inspire legions to chase after her persona as a path towards perfection. 
So maybe the best way to bow down and pay pop proper tribute to her isn't to hang her image on our walls or imitate her clothing choices but to sit down in front of one of her movies and appreciate her for being so dang good at her job yeah (laughs) i like and i feel like that it goes that way for all of them you know like instead of being like oh like i want to be a monroe so i'm gonna dress like she does in all of her movies and i'm gonna try to like personify her and everything that I do it's like maybe just sit down and realize like how hard these women were working yeah and like the that they were so good that they've literally created decades and decades of people who believe them to be the tropes that they were playing totally when in reality none of them were like none of them were these tropes that they played Mm -hmm. I want to read this other little paragraph from the article too that I write that I really liked yeah that I write And she says, this is kind of like in the conclusion of it, where she says, indeed, just in case you haven't figured it out yet, the reason Audrey and Marilyn enjoy such cultural ubiquity in a way that surpasses even beloved stars like Liz Taylor and, of course, Grace Kelly, who we talked about, is because Mm -hmm. they fulfill the roles we desire for them to play, not as people, but as archetypes. They're the yin and the yang. No, screw that. This is a distinctly American phenomenon. We cultural descendants of Puritans do love our Madonna slash whore dichotomies. So let's not pretty it up with religious appropriation that makes it sound deeper than it probably is. They're Betty and (laughs) Veronica. They're Ginger and Marianne. They, well, their Mm -hmm. lasting images at least, represent two idolized sides sides of a woman that we seem to have a lot of trouble picturing as fully integrated. And I just yep. loved that paragraph. I loved it. Just like, screw that. No, it's not that. Yeah. It's not supposed to be as, like, let's, we can't even associate it with a spiritual thing such as yin and yang. <laughs> exactly. It actually reminds me, I think I posted on our Instagram story a couple weeks ago about how, like, people always ask, like, oh, well, you were, are you a Jane Austen or an Emily and, um, an Emily Ann Bronte yeah, yeah, yeah. girl? And it's like, you don't have to be one or the other. Like, why does it come down to this idea over and over again that, like, you have to be one or the other constantly? And also, and like you pointed out with that post, if it's like their writing styles were totally different, their stories were totally mm -hmm. different. That's like just the only reason why they're put together is because they're women. You know, it's not like Mm -hmm. you would randomly be like, oh, are you a... I, I can't even think of classic author men right now, but like, are you a Charles Dickens <laughs> or a Edgar Allan Edgar Poe? Poe. Sure. It's like, uh, <laughs> like they're kind of very different. I don't know. Like, yeah. Like and I think both? it's even a phenomenon I ran into writing like an art essay mm. is where we constantly throw women together in art criticism where we're like, oh, we'll compare Artemisia Gentowski to like our recent episode on Sonia Delaney. Yeah. You can't. Sonia Delaney did abstract, uh, whatever it was called, like abstract art based, basically cubism. And Artemisia Gentileski was in the middle of the Renaissance, yeah. like doing biblical scenes. Like you can't compare them just because they're women doesn't mean that anything else is connected. And it's better to look at them compared to like other people of the time period. No, but it's like exactly throwing them together all the time. It's like they're, they're not the same. The only thing they have in, no. in common is their gender. Their gender. And it's proven gender doesn't really have that much of an impact on the art you create. Like, yeah. kind of does. But, like, your time period has way more of an impact than your gender does. Yeah. Like, so the, life, the world you grew up in, oddly enough. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Interesting that the I, environment around you has more to say than I, But how you... I just, oh, man. <laughs> but, yeah, I think even more than maybe that's why Hepburn and, like... Monroe are so thrown together is because they did happen to be in the same time period so they're like oh we can compare and contrast that's true but it's 
it's just interesting that out of all of the Hollywood starlets, because we only did four, and the reason we wanted to do four was to bring in more context to like other people that yeah. existed. Well, kind of like that in that paragraph period. I read, like there was Liz Taylor, and with the yeah. one thing I referenced where Marilyn Monroe was like sixth in that list, like we didn't even touch on whoever was number one. Mm. So yeah. You know, there's so many Hollywood starlets at that time in the golden age of Hollywood. But for some it's reason, just, those two. Yeah. Oh, and even. OK, so I just typed in Audrey Hepburn versus Marilyn Monroe on Pinterest. OK. And it's sad. Oh, dear. I'm joining <laughs> because you. Because it goes, oh, the one on the left helped in the Polish resistance against Nazi invasion, understood the importance of education and knew six languages fluently. Like, keeps going about all of this. Like, stopped acting to raise her children, became a UNICEF ambassador, and donated the rest of her life. But more people wor- worship the woman on the right, who is known for playing dumb, sexy blondes, was uneducated by choice, and died from a drug overdose. Oh, oh, I'm gagging. I, oh my yeah. gosh. Society it's needs like, to start valuing no. people more for their acts of good rather than outward beauty. Um, um, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and yeah, it's like so unfair to Marilyn Monroe and Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. Like, they're turning Audrey Hepburn into this like all-knowing saint like borderline Virgin Mary level of like, yeah, honestly, you know, and then they're turning Marilyn Monroe into this like horrible, evil seductress. And it's like, no, they were both people who lived very different lives and, like, and just had so very traumatic to have... backgrounds. And oh, like, yeah, I mean, obviously there was a lot in Marilyn Monroe's personal life, you know, mm-hmm. that and to then criticize her like and then died of a drug overdose. It's like, OK, first off, let's like consider mental health implications here first. Yeah. You know, because if we care about mental health and we de- and care about destigmatizing it, you can't say that Marilyn Monroe is the worst of the two because she died of a drug overdose obviously throwing away any possibility of whatever the conspiracies are but you know what i mean like there's just so many layers here it just drives me crazy you know and there's also like layers of wealth you have to realize as well like marilyn monroe didn't grow up wealthy no and yes with everything that Audrey Hepburn went through like she literally faced malnutrition and watching family members get murdered at the hands of the yeah, Nazis. Yeah, like not to belittle that. Yeah, but her family was pretty well off, and though even though like later her mom actually ended up working as a housekeeper in order to support them because they lost all of their wealth during the war. So like I mean the situation had changed a lot, but for the most part, her very early life and like up to her teenage years, she was extremely wealthy, which means education was a lot easier to get yeah. <laughs> than it would have been for other people at that time. So there's just like, there's too many layers to throw people together like that and compare them so awfully in that yeah, way. Yeah, I hate this <laughs> post. I, oh my God, what a disaster. Yeah, essentially like the whole point of this episode was just to like further along the idea that like we need to stop putting women in boxes Especially, like, I feel like it becomes even more dangerous the more far removed we are from their life and their legacy. Because there's going to be a whole new generation of people that have never seen a movie with either of them. Who, like, have them in this box. Yeah. And it's just scary that it's, like, the further you get away from the actual people, how much more these tropes could kind of take over and remove the legacies of these inspiring women. All of them. Like, incredibly inspiring women who can't be summed up just by like a film trope totally I, i'm like really 
upset now. I know. Now I'm just like, <laughs> oh, I just hate it. Like Marilyn Monroe yeah. deserves more. And I know we talked about them a little bit less, but like for sure, Grace Kelly and Doris Day, like go learn about them as well and watch their movies. Mm-hmm. Like both inspiring women involved in so much work. Like, I mean, Grace Kelly was literally a princess. I know. <laughs> like, oh, like I, said, like I had no clue. No idea. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, Doris Day, her films are really great. Like, if you're a musical theater fan, you're going to love them. Yeah, um, I'm so excited. I haven't actually, I don't think I've seen any of those movies, so I'm very excited yeah. to check it out. No, you would love Calamity Jane. And then there's also another movie that I loved called Pillow Talk mm-hmm. that she's in. Um, that's very good. So we'll have to create, like, a little list or something of these movies. We should pay more attention to the work that they actually achieved in their life instead of stupid Pinterest quotes. <laughs> um, put that on a pillow, actually. <laughs> yeah, there you put go. Put that as a Pinterest quote. Well, thank you everyone for listening to the episode today. Yeah, thank you. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope it made you think a little bit differently about some of these women. And totally. We'll be back with another one for sure next week. I know. Next Wait, week. do we have two this week? Yeah, we do. So this week, we're going to have a bonus episode on Wednesday talking about the fangirls book mm-hmm. we're very excited and we have a guest co-host joining us that i'm very excited yes, we about do. so i know it's really gonna be cool it's gonna be a good episode quick one on wednesday so watch out for that even if you didn't read the book it'll still be great it'll be a great discussion on fangirls so check it out yeah we're kind of going back to our roots a little bit from one of our earlier episodes on fangirls so it'll be fun to kind of talk about it a little more Okay, cool. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. We've been talking for a while. We had a lot to cover, (laughs) so we'll wrap this up. But thank you so much for joining us today. And if you've been enjoying it, leave us a review. Shout us out on Instagram. Mm -hmm. We really appreciate that, and it really helps us grow the podcast. And, yeah, we love you. Thank you for being here. Yes, we do. Thanks, everyone, and see you next week. Bye. Bye. Hey, podcast listener, do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.